Well, good morning. We have, in different times and different ways, talked about the importance of prayer and certainly lifting our prayers to the Lord, but also in giving thanks for answered prayer. And we would be remiss if this morning we were not to acknowledge a prayer that was answered that has been 52 years or so in the making um, with the overturn of Roe v. v. Wade. And as it's a harbinger of what we certainly anticipate of the ending of abortion in many states across this country, it's also a great opportunity for the gospel. Because there's a lot of people who are genuinely fearful. It's easy to mock them. It's easy to respond in disgust. It's easy to see them as the enemy. Regardless of how they speak or how they act, we are to love them. And we're to preach the gospel to them. This is if anything, and at any time, perhaps when their emotions are at their rawest, when they feel betrayed, having placed their hope and their confidence in something other than in the Lord and in government, an opportunity to present to them the glorious hope of the gospel. So don't use it as a time to rub it in someone's face. Certainly praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord for the answered prayer, for hopefully the lives that will be spared and saved. But what a tremendous opportunity, and don't let that fact escape your notice. This is an opportunity to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to speak the gospel to the lives of those we come in contact with. Well, this morning we have much to cover in our study of Jonah. If you were not here with us last week, uh, we have begun our summer series, and in that we're breaking away from our study of Matthew to jump into the book of Jonah. We covered the opening scene of Act 1 in Jonah, verses 1 through 3, as well as established something of the context last week. And this morning we're going to look at the second scene of this first act in verses 4 through 16. And as I noted, we do have much to cover this morning, so I'm going to just jump in by reading the text and opening us up in prayer. So if you have not already turned there with me, you can turn to Jonah, and since we're only three verses in, we'll back up to verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, so he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down below to the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity, this evil has struck us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity 
struck us. What is your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened. They said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that it is on account of me that this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray as we prepare ourselves for our study this morning. Father, we do want to give you praise and give you thanks for the answer to prayer this week with the reversal of Roe versus Wade. Father, we pray that in addition to the saving of the physical lives of children in the womb, that this would also be an opportunity, an opportunity that is seized upon by the church to preach your gospel, that we would see many souls brought into the kingdom. Father, we pray We ask that you would allow questions to be raised in the minds of those who so earnestly oppose this, that those questions that they would seek out answers to would would be answered to be answered by those who know you, who can point them to the gospel, to the hope that is in the gospel. Father, we do not want to be remiss in giving you thanks for this great event. Father, as we turn our time and attention this morning to the study of your word, we thank you that you are a God who has spoken into history. Your word has been delivered to us. Father, we want to treasure it. We want to know it because it gives us insight into who you are as you have revealed yourself and made yourself manifest to us. Would you give us ears to hear, minds to understand, to comprehend this story, one that we have probably taken for granted or breezed over or misunderstood so easily in the past, and will we understand its implications for our lives today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, as I just prayed and as we stated last week, Jonah is perhaps the most well-known book of The Old Testament, perhaps of even the Bible, when you think of it as a book in its entirety. Even for those who do not have a particular fondness or interest in the Bible, they likely have some understanding of Jonah. If you were not able to join us last week, I encourage you to uh, perhaps go back and listen this week as we really laid the, the context and the groundwork for understanding this book, the understanding of the context of the book of Jonah. 
Importantly is the reminder that of the Hebrew division of the Old Testament, which is divided into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. There's a reason I'm giving you this context. It's not just a history or a grammar lesson. You may remember that the prophets were further subdivided into the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets in that period of your Old Testament go from Joshua to 2 Kings. And it tells a story. It tells the story, it tells the history or collection of history that gives a continuous story running from Joshua to 2 Kings. It's not an exhaustive story or history, but it tells a story, a continuous story. The latter prophets include the Old Testament books of Isaiah and Malachi. Compared to the story of the former prophets, these latter prophets are a collection of statements, proclamations, prayers, sayings. And they're really, honestly, an odd collection. Certainly an odd collection to place together under the title Prophets, especially after having read the former prophets and the story, they really don't feel at all like they belong together. And yet there is a unifying theme. There is a reason that they have been titled together. And that unifying theme, as we discussed last week, is the coming of the word of the Lord in the days of the prophets. And what is emphasized in the former and in the latter prophets alike is that there is a God, and this God has spoken into human history. The former prophets were not fundamentally concerned with the wars and the rise and fall of kings. Yes, that was the continuous story that was being told, but that all lies on the surface. What was really important was the coming of the word of the Lord. The writers are concerned with this phenomena in human history, that there is a God who has spoken into human history. We see this in expressions such as the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Then a few verses or chapters later, we read that such and such happened according to the word of Elijah or the word spoken to Elijah. These statements occur over a hundred times in these prophets. God spoke into history and history was directed by the words God spoke. See, the word of God is nothing new. From Genesis to Revelation, it is God speaking into human history. From the very beginning, God spoke, and it was. History was bent to his will. Creation was manufactured by the breath of his mouth. The former prophets tell us the course of history that was directed and determined by the word that God spoke. And so it's perfectly appropriate and fitting then to find these, for, these former prophets bracketed by these latter prophets that do not so much tell the story, though there is some, such as here in Jonah, but record the content of the word of God which came through the prophets. We see thus from Isaiah onward this repeated theme. Often at the start of each book, really it's the title of every book in the Hebrew Old Testament, and then often repeated within them, something along the lines of the word of the Lord came to Micah, or the word of the Lord which Isaiah the son of Amaz saw, or Jeremiah to whom the word of the Lord came. The content of these books is the word of God which was spoken into history. The story was told in the former prophets, but the content is unfolded in these latter prophets. 
Now, why do we spend time there? Because Jonah is in the latter prophets. He appears in this group of latter prophets, specifically those we would often call the minor prophets, 12 of them, called the Book of the Twelve in the Hebrew Old Testament. But you see, Jonah, as we have noted, is the strangest and most unusual of prophets. Never has there been a prophet like Jonah, and I don't mean that in an admirable way. Last week, the curtain closed on Act 1, Scene 1 of Jonah. The sails are unfurled in Joppa as the ship carrying Jonah sets toward the west, toward Tarshish. This man, this unfaithful prophet, is fleeing his role as prophet before the Lord. He does not want to obey the Lord and go to Nineveh, so he arises and runs in the opposite direction. Again, never before has there been a prophet who got up at the word of the Lord, he arose at the word of the Lord, turns on his tail, not to obey, but to run from the responsibility that he has been entrusted with. The opening scene of Jonah last week ends in frustration, the end of verse 3. This little man, this disobedient prophet, is upsetting the plan of God. He is running the opposite direction. Technically, he's sailing. How can this be? With that background, the curtain rises on scene two, and we see what will happen next because God has spoken. This book is rightly titled Jonah, and yet this large section of chapter one is really not focused on Jonah. After verse three, really Jonah fades into the background. The main focus of chapter one is the sailors and their contrast to Jonah. And so to help us walk through this scene, we will observe the activity of these sailors. We, we observe them first in the reaction of the sailors to the storm. Secondly, we see the response of the sailors to Jonah's words. Thirdly, we see the reverence of the sailors to God's calming of the storm. We read in verse 4 that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. It's the, it's the idea of the pitcher on the mound hurling it towards home plate. He's throwing with all of his might the winds upon the seas, whipping up this storm. There's a mighty tempest upon the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. It's actually, it actually uses a really interesting personification. The, the ship is thinking about breaking up because it can't withstand this. Just as the Lord initiated the action in scene one, so it is the Lord that initiates the action in the opening of scene two. In scene one, we can tell by the word that he spoke that he is judge of all the earth. He's not limited to Israel. He sends Jonah to the Gentile nation of Assyria, specifically to one of their capital cities, Nineveh. He is judge over all of creation. And here we see that he's not only judge over all the nations, he is ruler over all creation. And his rule over creation is now exercised to bring down the elements in judgment upon Jonah. It's quite a scene. God hurling the winds of judgment on the sea. Jonah seeking to flee from the presence of God. And caught up in this scene, 
quite unaware as to what is actually going on, are these pagan sailors on this ship. Before this terrific storm, they are terrified, we read in verse 5. And it is these pagan sailors who, have we, who we have noted are central to this scene. And here in verses 4 through 5, we see the reaction of these sailors to the storm. No natural storm is this, they reason. They've never encountered a storm like this. And they try everything available to them. They try prayer. Each one cries out to his own God. No effect. They pit themselves against the storm. They hurl their cargo into the sea. The language actually paints a rather comical picture. While God is throwing the wind at them, they're throwing their cargo back into the sea. No effect. In verse 4, we see God Almighty hurl his judgments on the wind of the sea. And in response, the sailors start hurling their cargo, hurling their prayers heavenward as if they will do any good. Now, our sympathies run to these sailors. They're in a pitiful state. Pitifully ignorant of what is going on, they're caught up in something that is really quite beyond them and at least in one sense has nothing to do with them at all. As a great display of God's judgment surrounds them. I mean, really, this is a perfect picture and reminder of the terrifying, far-reaching consequences and effect of sin. Sin is like a multi-car pileup. It does not only affect the one careless driver, but often has severe effects on several, if not dozens, of others, and less pronounced effect on hundreds more stuck in traffic. One of the nation's worst traffic accidents happened in 1990 in Calhoun, Tennessee. The dense fog created very limited visibility. One driver unable to stop hit another, but it didn't stop there. The result of that first crash was a series of accidents that stretched on for several minutes. Survivors described the continuous sound of metal crashing into metal over and over and over and over again for minutes. In the end, there were 99 vehicles involved, 42 serious injuries, 12 deaths, took days to clean up the wreckage, and that entire section of Interstate 75 had to be rebuilt. The fog was a significant contributor, but all it took was one person's error to set off a horrific chain reaction. In much the same way, all it takes is one person's sin to affect an unknown number of persons. Never think that your sin is isolated to just you. This is why within the church, Paul is so concerned about the unrepentant sin of the Corinthians. It is affecting the entire body of believers and even going forth outside to the testimony of the church at large. And so while our primary motivation for ceasing and repenting of sin is and should be our love for Christ, it is helpful to recognize the selfishness of our sin and its far-reaching implications and effects. We see that here in Jonah. So what of Jonah? In the midst of this terrible storm that threatens the lives of these sailors, where is Jonah? He's asleep. On this ship, we are being shown a variety of human responses to this display of divine judgment. God is acting in judgment, 
Terror is struck into the hearts of the pagan sailors. They cry out in prayer in every way they know. They pray to every conceivable God except for the one true God. They do everything they can. Every human effort that can be imagined is hurled back against this storm. And yet, there is one who slumbers on. In fact, it's rather disturbing when you look at this text carefully. See, the text seems to indicate that Jonah is going down into the ship, into the cargo hold to sleep is concurrent with the sailors calling out to their, guard, to their gods and hurling cargo into the sea. So picture this. The winds are rising, the waves are crashing, the ship is on the brink of breaking apart. Sailors, seasoned sailors, used to long, deep voyages. Remember Tarshish's Timbuktu. They're used to these long voyages on the open sea. These are deep ships, are terrified. They have never seen a storm like this. So what is Jonah's response? Knowing that he's the cause of it? Does he cry out to the Lord for mercy? No. He goes down into the hole of the ship, abandoning the sailors, descending while they are crying out for their very lives, throwing cargo overboard, all the while knowing he is at fault. How selfish. And yet he clings to his sin. This sleep is a unique term, and it's not your typical sleep. This is deep sleep. Most likely here with Jonah in the context, a depressed sleep. If you've ever talked to someone who has struggled with depression, or maybe you've battled small bits of depression yourself, you know you don't feel like doing anything. It just overwhelms you. You give up on everything. Jonah had given up on life. He descended into that cargo hold to die, assuming that this was the end. Rather than calling out to God for mercy, he selfishly, stubbornly, and sinfully descends into the ship and falls into this deep sleep. This is an extraordinary scene. The terrifying judgment of God terrifies the pagan sailors, but rocks Jonah off to sleep. The contrast between the two is central to this scene. It's central to this chapter. He, Jonah, a prophet of God, they, the pagan sailors. And the response to the judgment of God could not be more distinct. Before a mighty display of God's judgment, at least they are terrified. Jonah, he sleeps on. What a strange prophet. Well, verses 6 through 13 provide us with the response of the sailors to Jonah's words, but before he can speak, he has to be woken up. Somehow it is discovered that he is asleep. My guess is that it's while they're hurling cargo into the sea. They go back into the deepest recesses of the cargo hold, and as they're pulling out the last of the crates, there they find Jonah fast asleep. Interestingly, it doesn't appear that they wake him up, they go and tell the captain. Word reaches the captain of this slumbering prophet. The captain himself is amazed that anyone can sleep in such a storm. So the captain approaches him and says in verse 6, What do you mean, you sleeper? Literally, how can you sleep? You are characterized by sleep. It makes no sense. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps your God will give thought to us and we will not perish. Mark that in your Bible, by the way, because... Really interesting to come back to that because this is nearly identical to the statement made by the king of Nineveh. 
when we get there in chapter 3 in a few weeks. Now, you can't help but consider at this point that this captain, this pagan's theological perception, his understanding of God is somewhat sharper than this prophet's. He may be misdirected, but at least he recognizes that salvation from this storm will only come through divine intervention. So he calls on Jonah to pray to his God. Now, I have to ask a question at this point. What is the primary job of a prophet? It's to proclaim. It's to speak. It's to pray. But do we hear a prayer from Jonah's lips? No, we don't. At this point, he is unwilling, stubbornly so, to cry out to the God from whom he is fleeing. He prefers death over the mercy of God, even if it involves the death of others. He prefers silence over salvation. Look at how far his sin has taken him. Quickly, the scene changes. Again, to the deck of the ship. The sailors are desperate. They're crying out to every conceivable God, demonstrating their recognition, again, that this is divine wrath. They know that this is a storm like no other. This is no human storm. We find them on the deck of the ship pursuing a further desperate solution to their peril. They decide to cast lots so they can determine the one responsible for this display of divine wrath. As a further indication of the providence and the sovereignty of God, it falls on Jonah at the end of verse 7. Sailors stop hurling cargo into the sea and start hurling questions at Jonah. Where do you come from? What do you do? What nationality are you? Desperately, the sailors are searching for some clue as to the source of this divine disaster and what is to be done. And at last, Jonah is forced to speak. He's backed into a corner. Now he finally has to talk. We haven't heard a peep out of Jonah up to this point. This is the first time we get any of his recorded speech. Certainly he had to speak when he was purchasing his fare and arranging himself for Tarshish. But this is the first time we see him speak, certainly in the midst of this calamity. And if you were to arrange this book and look at its themes and look at what's happening, verses 9 and 10 stand at the very center of this book. They're critically important. This is what this is pointing to. He says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Now that's a sound statement. That's truth. There's an affirmation about God that underlines all that we've already seen about the God who speaks into human history. He is the creator, the one who has made all things. That was the very first time he spoke in human history. And it is because he is the creator that he is the ruler over all creation as we saw in verse 4. And so he can bring down the winds of judgment. It's because he's the creator of all the earth that he's the judge of all the earth. The reason he's sending Jonah to Nineveh. He's the God of heaven, as Jonah calls him. The ultimate one. The great paradox, though, is that this deeply profound and true statement about God in verse 9 comes from the lips of Jonah. Jonah the rebel. Jonah the one who by his actions has affirmed he will not serve this God. 
the one who is fleeing to escape relationship with this God, the one running from his role as prophet standing before this God. He yet says, I fear the Lord. But on his lips, these have a hollow and empty ring. And the contrast emerges very clearly in verse 10. Between him, with all that knowledge, all that understanding, receiving the word of the Lord, and these sailors. He might have said he was afraid in verse 9, that he feared the Lord. But we read in verse 10 that the sailors were exceedingly afraid and terrified when they discovered what it was that Jonah had done and who it was he was running from. Jonah's actions reveal the hypocrisy of his statement that he fears the Lord. Certainly everything else he said was true, but that one statement, his actions revealed the hypocrisy. Jonah's fear of the Lord are empty words. His fear did nothing to change the course of his actions, to bring about obedience. His fear of the Lord in verse 9 is intellectual, not relational. As we noted last week, right doctrine does not always lead to right behavior and practice. It's a sad reality. In fact, far too often, it is those who know Scripture best, who should be leading and loving in the truth, who hurt others the most through their sin. So in verse 11, they desperately press Jonah, who's now identified their dilemma. They desperately press him for a solution. He's backed into this corner even further. So he says, take me, and here's that word again, hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is on account of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, it's somewhat difficult, if we would acknowledge it, to accurately assess this, rep this response by Jonah. But I think we can. If we consider the flow of the story and in light of what comes later in this book, I think it's important to note that he still doesn't cry out to God to the God of heaven for mercy. He remains steadfast in his refusal to pray. Why? Well, I think the answer goes back to what we talked about last week. He knows God is merciful. Remember, going back to 2 Kings, he was a prophet of mercy. In the midst of Jeroboam II's reign, that evil Jeroboam, who led all of the nation into evil idolatry, he proclaimed mercy to Israel, expansion of your borders. He knows that the God he serves is merciful. And yet he refuses to pray to the God of mercy. The last thing he wants right now is to be reminded of God's mercy. I don't think for a moment that this was some gallant act of self-sacrifice here. No, I think he would rather die than obey. This is stubbornness. I'd rather die than call out for mercy. I'd rather die than pray to God. So throw me into the sea. The sea that he knows well is the instrument of God's judgment against him. The sea he knows is in the hands of the God of heaven. He would rather be hurled into the sea than throw himself at the feet of the God of heaven in repentance and cry for mercy. His response highlights his selfishness and sinfulness. He would rather die sinning than turn to the Lord for mercy. 
So Jonah verbalizes an extreme reaction, an explanation for which will come later in the book. But for the moment, we're simply presented with its extremity. This man who is fleeing from the presence of the Lord would prefer to be abandoned to the forces of God's judgment rather than turn out or turn around and pray to the God of mercy and grace. What an apt picture of our sin. How we cling to it. How we would rather hold on to our sin, choosing the passing pleasures of this world. They're nothing better than sweetened poison than to turn to the God of mercy and repentance. How often have we clung onto our bitterness, our anger, our sin, refusing to exchange it for the sweetness of mercy and forgiveness from God? John rightfully writes in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is this God of mercy. Well, the sailors who attract our pity once again are not too keen on Jonah's suggestion. So they respond by rowing like crazy against the forces of the storm. And it's a comical picture, really. The futility of human efforts in the face of God's judgment. Nothing happens. If anything, they're further from shore. The storm has gotten stronger. The ship is even closer to breaking apart. And so verses 14 through 16 present us with a third and final picture of the sailors. We observe their reverence before the God who controls creation. It starts out just like verse 5, at least thematically. But this time it's different. For this time they pray not to their false gods. Notice this. They pray to Jonah's God. This time they pray to the one who made the sea and the dry land. This time they pray to the ruler of all creation. This time they pray to the judge of all the earth. If Jonah will not pray to this God, then they will. And notice what it is they pray for. Mercy. They pray for the Lord, to the Lord of mercy, for mercy, before casting this prophet of mercy into the sea. What a picture. The scene began in verse 4 with the Lord hurling a great wind into the sea, causing a great tempest, which aroused fear in these pagan sailors. Now it closes in verse 15 with Jonah being hurled into the sea after their prayer. And what happens? God grants mercy. The sea stops its raging. The storm stops. The scene began, you see, with the action of God's judgment. It now concludes with God's action of deliverance, at least as far as the sailors are concerned. Jonah? Well, we'll have to wait for Jonah. To the ancient ear hearing the story for the first time, the story's really over for Jonah. He's gone. He's in the sea. The attention then is fully upon the sailors. You see, the fear of the sailors at the quieting of the storm exceeds their fear at its height. Because now they fear, verse 16, the Lord. And the scene concludes in verse 16 in a most intriguing manner, at least to our modern ears. 
because they take upon themselves actions that seem strange to us. They offer sacrifices and they make vows. But what you need to understand is that those are the actions, the typical actions of a pious and God-fearing Israelite. They respond in true and pious worship to the God of heaven, the God of Israel, the only true God. We don't know any more about these sailors. Personally, I have little doubt that we will one day meet those sailors in heaven, those who experienced the mercy and the salvation of God who responded in true worship to the one true God of heaven and earth. Well, there's the end of scene two. Closes out act one of Jonah. Jonah's gone. The sailors have experienced salvation and they are on the beach worshiping. But let's reflect for a few moments as we draw to a close. You see, this whole story began, this first act, with the word of the Lord coming. It began with this phenomenon which the Bible testifies from beginning to end, a God who speaks, a God who has spoken into human history, and because of which, history bends before him. And this book began with that phenomenon, the judge of all the earth speaking into history. It concludes in chapter 1, verse 16, with this God acknowledged and worshipped from the most unlikely of sources, Gentile pagan sailors. And the rebel prophet, the one who disobeyed the word of God that came, well, that one has fallen under God's judgment. This book is a paradigm, the coming of the word of the Lord tells us something about what happens when God speaks. And God has spoken. He has spoken again and again through the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the testament to the reality that there is a God who speaks. A God who speaks into human history. God's word comes into this world. And when he speaks into this world, things happen. And what this does is to prepare us and anticipate that he will speak supremely through what is recounted for us in the New Testament. What is it that John reminds us of in John 1? The word of God came into this world and became flesh. The word of God entered human history. Now no longer as a verbal utterance, but as human flesh. This is the supreme example of the word of God. The word of God has, been, has spoken throughout human history. It has now been made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, in the coming of Christ into this world. And God continues to speak into this world. He continues to speak into this world as the gospel of Jesus Christ is communicated to people, as the message of Christ goes out, and as the message of Christ is heard by persons. The one who has spoken, whether it was then or whether it is now through the gospel, the one who speaks is the judge of all the earth. Turn with me in your Bibles to another of the latter prophets, Isaiah, in Isaiah 45. Let's read together these words of Isaiah the prophet, beginning in verse 20. 
Think of yourself as one of those sailors as you hear these words, by the way. Gather yourselves together and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. Is there any better description of these sailors, these Gentile sailors of the nations? They were aiding and abetting a fugitive of the Lord. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Could any of their prayers save them? Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me? A righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. What a beautiful picture we have of that at the end of Jonah 1. And in the New Testament, we read in Philippians 2 that this universal reverence, this universal bowing will be at the name of Jesus. The word of God Come into this world made flesh. The truth is that this God who has spoken will be acknowledged. He will be worshipped. Jesus said that if no person will speak, then even the stones will cry out. It may come from the most unlikely of individuals, but it will happen that he is worshipped. But as for the one who will not obey the word of the Lord, who will not obey When it comes, who will not hear and listen, who will not heed the word of God, which is spoken to him, well, look at Jonah, hurled into the sea, turned over to the judgment of God. As his word is preached and taught in churches around the world, as it's shared and ministered through conversations and teaching throughout the week, God's word receives a variety of responses, and we saw that contrast of responses this morning between the sailors and Jonah. There is rebellion, which ends up in slumber. Now, perhaps not sleeping in the bottom of the ship, but a response of indifference, of inaction, of passivity towards one's sin. By contrast, there is a recognition which leads to a cry to God for mercy, a response of obedience, a recognition of one's spiritual poverty and neediness that leads to repentance. How will you respond to your sin when the word of the Lord comes? How do you respond to your sin when the word of the Lord comes? Do you cling to it? Would you rather hold on to it and face the terrifying judgment of God or will you repent and throw yourself upon the Lord of mercy? Hurl yourself upon the Lord of mercy. As we've so often been reminded of in our study of Matthew, Jesus is calling. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. 
We cannot help but at the end of this first chapter in the book of Jonah to identify with either Jonah or the sailors. It's one or the other. Where are you? Are you worshiping with the sailors next to a calm sea, a reminder of the mercy of God? Or are you with Jonah, hurled into the sea under the judgment of God? If you're here this morning, clinging to your sin, and please, before you leave this morning, turn to the Lord of mercy. Do not go the way of Jonah. Follow the path of the sailors. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ as the only means, the only way, the only hope of salvation. And experience the joy of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this poignant reminder this morning through this strange story of this strange prophet and yet the picture that's been preserved for us that brings conviction, that peels back as your word so faithfully does to show us our own shortcomings. Father, help us to release, by the help of your spirit, help us to release our hold, our desire to cling to any sin. Let us be quick to repent, quick to ask for forgiveness, quick to acknowledge our spiritual neediness, and let us go the way of these sailors in worship and reverence for you. Pray this in your name. Amen.